The Dance of Gods, Book One, Spell of Catastrophe, written and read by Mayor Alan Brenner. Chapter Seventeen: Counterplots and Counterspells. Max had assumed something would go wrong and had wondered what it would be, but this was the quickest answer he'd ever been hit with. Blowgun and dart at the ready, he watched Oscan Yale's head rise up through the floor at the top of the staircase, taking his aim on the emerging neck. Another rapid footstep sounded behind Yale on the stairs. Without warning, the whine of magical energies suddenly released burst up into the workroom. Oscan Yale started to spin. A fan of sparks spouted up the stairs toward him like a fountain of pink lightning, arching over his head and out across the room. And a nimbus of flame pulsing with the beat of the wine swung up from behind, cut through his right arm and into his back, and hurled him toward the floor. Max hesitated, then tracked the falling Yale downward with the blowgun and puffed. Just as the dart left the barrel, Oscan Yale's head caromed off the heavy banister and flipped him to one side. The dart shot through the space where he should have been and embedded itself in a beam. So that was the way it was going to be. Yali's attacker had now appeared through the floor himself, the sword in his hand wearing its power like a blaze of fiery pearls. Max popped the next dart into the blowgun. He was deciding whether to go after Yali again or switch to the new complication, when it abruptly became apparent that the new guy and his sword were not in agreement on what they were doing. The sword was straining toward Oskin Yali, but the man had gotten his left arm braced under it and was trying to force it out of the way and into the floor. Through the rain of sparks, Max could see the muscles standing out on the guy's arm and neck. His teeth were clenched, and his face was turning red with blood. But the sword was going to win. It was one of those lousy, over-muscled, enchanted swords with half a mind of its own, and all of that mind was bent on drinking blood and devouring flesh. It's going to get it too, Max thought disgustedly. So goodbye, Oscar Yale. That wasn't the only goodbye. Max was sure this was just the kind of situation the death in the ring loved—hacking, pain, destruction. He would be coming awake. As long as the ring stayed on Yale's finger, though, he couldn't get out. And with a little luck, the confinement spells Max had ready could calm him back to quiescence. Max dropped the blowgun and made a pass with his hand, fluttering his thumb painfully over his wrist. The blue spirals of the first spell took shape over Oscar Yale's head. Yale spoke, his voice little more than a wet rattle. "You were not Kishana Tantra," Max heard. The other guy's response was even fainter, but Yale was facing away while the guy was pointed straight in Max's direction. So the words carried toward him. "No," the man said, "and you weren't death either. So maybe that makes us even." "Oh no," Max thought. "Not Kishana Tantra. Is he around too? If this guy was tied up with him, there was no telling what he might do." In fact, Max realized suddenly there was telling what he might do. The idiot. The sword pulled free from the floor panel that had caught it up and dug deep into Oskinyale. Oskinyale stiffened, the black aura rising off his skin like a hardening shroud. The man leaned forward over him. Max was on his feet and around the desk, yelling desperately, "Don't touch that ring!" His hands making frenzied passes and the blue confinement framework dropping toward the floor. The guy didn't hesitate. He lurched forward, grabbed Yale's fingers, seized the ring, and pulled. The ring came free in his hand. 
A long yellow filament of lightning jumped from Oscaniale's finger to the ring and squirmed for an instant in the air, smoke curling up from both the finger and the ring. A ripple washed through the black aura, starting at the finger and spreading in a quick expanding circle across the surface of Yale's body, as though the aura was shaking itself loose from the skin. The blue confinement grid locked into place around Oscaniale. The grid had assumed a lozenge shape formed of small faceted planes, each flat surface circulating with whirlpool whirls, one face now folding outward to encompass the ring, tiny fuzzy marbles glowing with blues and greens separated themselves from the inside surface of the grid and began to bounce around the interior. The matrix closed on the guy's arm. The man still had the sword in one hand and the ring in the other. Neither object was quiet. A web of silver electricity centered on the ring had enveloped his left hand, illuminating the bones with each coiling flash, and the sword held the other hand tight in its grip as it fed on the flesh of Yale. Max ground to a halt and started madly throwing power into the grid, trying to stabilize it, pushing the next spell in the series to release. The reaching appendage of Matrix touched the other man's skin. Then, at the circle of contact, a sudden snap. A powerful on-and-off flash of incendiary blue. A backlash surge quivered across the matrix and caught Max in its force and threw him away from the stairs into the desk. The edge of the field at the surface of the guy's arm swelled, turned white, and shattered. Tumbling white shards cascaded down. Max reeled back up and gestured again. What the hell had happened there? He sent a quick probe at the guy at the guy's aura. The aura was... huh? It was multiplexed. The man's own aura was overlaid and interwoven with the master wave and a set of lock lines and some other stuff he couldn't immediately recognize from the aura of somebody else, from a somebody else he did indeed recognize. So that's where Gashana Tantra comes into it, Max thought, new possibilities flickering through his mind. But the end of the Matrix field was still open, and the black aura was up to something. From a look at the guy's aura, the Matrix would never be able to lock together in its strongest configuration through his skin. The oral lines were too strong. Max hurled a modifier string, hoping the Matrix would hold long enough to encase Oscan Yale and the ring and the other guy, too. The black aura was a molten sheath of smoky vellum seen through the surface of the blue lozenge, gathering itself for a move. A new shaft of lightning ripped from Yale's finger toward the ring, and then the sheet of aura flowed off his body and down the thunderbolt in a smooth wave. The lightning darkened, the aura drew itself in, condensing and growing more solid as it arched out, and the force of the leading edge of the aura slammed dead center down the bore of the golden ring. Whoom! A blaze of electric white winked out from the ring. The floor shook, things fell off the shelves, even the heavy desk jumped up and hopped a foot back as the light fogged out vision like a sudden thick cloud. Max dimly saw the form of the guy fling out its hands and hurtle backward down the staircase, all the color washed from his body and his front stained boiling white. The sword pulled free from Oscaniale and flew after him, beginning to spin end over end as it left his hand. But the ring held stationary in the air, its spinning glow visible even through the haze of Max's flash blindness. Max staggered back against the desk, fighting to stay on his feet in the pounding shockwaves. The confinement matrix was in shreds. His second and third over vice clamp spells were fighting their way toward the ring, but were already losing force. They'd never make it on their own. A black funnel spun out of the other side of the ring. It was the black aura passing into the ring as a solid tube and fanning into a vortex as it left. 
tracers of force leapt from the walls toward the vortex, each giant spark making the cloud pulse red or yellow or green from its interior radiating out, and sending lines of light whipping around the surface like barrel hoops. Max grabbed control of the third confinement spell, fed it a new shot of power from his metabolic reserve, and squeezed. The spell turned a brighter blue and tightened on the ring. The tube of inflowing black began to narrow, Max gritted his teeth and fed again, blue flashed, and a corkscrew kink grew in the tube as the spell dug in further, fragments of black flaking off like spray from an ocean breaker. The vortex was now the height of the room, surrounded by expanding shock spheres bursting like bubbles, silver and orange and blue, but in the midst of it, something physical was taking shape. There was little doubt what that was, or rather, who. The form of the trapped death was coming through. Max held the confinement field steady and began to concentrate on the link phrases that would call up his new coupling spell, the one he'd used to fight the eye of Oscan Yale with Carlini back at the castle, if he swung out with that kind of hyper-energetic slug, it should be good enough to knock even a death into a manageable state. The coupling intermediary unfolded itself, a concave burgundy-colored plate with moving tendrils on its back floating in the air over the desk. The plate split into its four smaller replicas, and lightning flashed again in the depths of the roiling cloud. The cloud now filled the room, and in its core was a mounting fire condensing in a roughly human shape. Out of the constant shaking, seemingly out of the earth beneath the temple, an immense moan grew, swelling into thunder. A beam cracked loose from the ceiling, began to pivot down into the vortex, and burst spontaneously into flame. Ice had been congealing on the walls. One roof-hanging icicle that had been growing with incredible speed directly out of the air exploded in a billow of steam. A feeling of dread filled the room. In the heart of the fire, a presence began to form. Max abruptly decided he'd better change tack. He'd never be able to actually get the death back in the ring, not at this stage, not the way things were going. The only thing he might be able to do was control the damage. The death was manifesting in an attitude of extreme vexation, a very, very dangerous condition indeed. The coupling spell split again into its swarm of tiny modules and descended toward an ornamental skull on the desk as Max reached out for the quiescent sequence of his programmed spell chain Maybe that could calm the death down, help him instantiate normally instead of... A fireball pulsed through the vortex. The outer layers of cloud and all the ice on the walls vaporized in a sudden fog of dark steam. Pieces of roof hurtled upward into the night. Coils of force gathered, and the presence reached out. Max, flying again through the air, caught in the force of the vortex, hit the wall, bounced off, hit another wall, and fell to the floor. Something burned on his chest, his amulet. Silver lights were racing across its surface. The tiny sapphires and the few larger stones and the big ruby had come ablaze with color and were blasting twining shafts of energy back out at the vortex. Now that's interesting, Max thought. And then the presence noticed him. Max felt the flail of its attention shift in his direction. This manifestation of the death had become in essence consumed with frenzied rage and moderated by only the barest trace of sentience. As Max opened his mouth for a last-ditch word of power, the thing lashed out at him with fire. The flame struck the energy shaft from Max's amulet. A crack of massive thunder, a titanic flash of red. The flame broke against the field of the amulet and curled off to the sides, like a water wave crashing around the prow of a boat, and the impact of colliding fields smashed Max backward as the wall disintegrated around him, 
But Max himself was impossibly unscathed. Well, quite a bit sinned, actually, yet certainly alive. Max twisted, now in mid-air, saw a split-second image of an onrushing floor and cowering guards. The floor came up as it spun down to its proper place, and Max collided with it on one foot and fell to the other knee in a crouch. A pile of smoldering wreckage dropped on his back. He shook his head and forced himself back to his feet, fragments of wood panel cascading off him onto the floor. The rubble had also fallen on the guardsmen he noticed next to him, but, true to form, they had already spotted him and decided he was someone worthwhile to attack, and were converging on him with their swords. And, also true to form, his own rapier was buried somewhere in the ruin of the upper room. "'Max!' said the voice of Zalzine Shaw. Max whipped his gaze up and saw a sword spinning toward him above the heads of the soldiers. He ducked under the lunge of the first man, straightened up with his left shoulder in the guy's stomach, lifting him off his feet and throwing him backward into the man just behind him, jabbed the elbow of his other arm to the breastbone of another soldier at his back on the opposite side, got his left hand on top of the head of a fourth soldier, and used that as a grip to help fling himself into the air. The flying sword slapped into his right hand, outstretched above the clamor. His other hand was still on the head of the soldier he'd use as a vaulting pole. Max pushed off clockwise as he reached the top of his leap and began to descend. His new sword traced a downward spiral path, looping gracefully but with remarkable speed around the lunges and guards and attempted slashes of the troopers, leaving a neat trail of red outlined across their torsos. The troopers fell, Max began another leap over their declining heads in the direction of Shaw's voice, and a large fireball burst out of the mezzanine workroom and paused overhead, trailing orange jets like the tail of a comet. Waves of terrible heat slammed out, the beams in the wall and the ceiling around it exploding into flaming ash. Within the blaze of plasma, crude features appeared, a pair of jagged eyes and a red savage mouth. Max whipped his head in and wrapped himself into a ball as the mouth curled into a sneer. The lips parted. Scorching wind smashed into Max with the force of a lead hammer and drove him into the floor, except the floor itself had already blown through from the pressure and was tumbling into the basement. Something caught at Max's side. Debris pelted him and scraped him loose. He plunged again, and as he opened one eye and got a glance off under his arm, still in his tucked position with his head sunk onto his chest and his arms wrapped around his head, he hit bottom, slid two feet along an embankment, rolled over an edge sharp with pointy stones, and plopped into a stream of steaming water. Disgusting water! The blast had broken through the foundation all the way into the sewer under the temple. Flaming pieces of the temple floor were striking all around, raising a constant fountain of water that vaporized in the hot air. Max got his nose out of the water to breathe, trying to assess his health and collect his thoughts. But then, with another massive rumble, a new mound of debris appeared overhead, silhouetted against the yellow storm of flames in the building above. The pile of debris, surely an entire wall at least, expanded in his vision and grew huge, and then the stuff dropped full along the line of the open sewer. Max's personal protection field had done pretty well for him so far. It couldn't ward off everything, but it did mean he was only bruised and bloody and in moderate pain, rather than totally pulped. How it would fare against the equivalent of a major avalanche, though? As fast as he could, Max spoke a pre-conjured word reserved for a significant emergency. Energy drained from his body and slammed into his shield as the rubble descended. The flaming avalanche caught him and threw him into the sewer wall, crushing him into the stones, and then the weight and the force were dragging him down, down beneath the level of the water, 
down to the bottom of the sewer bed, down into the muck, mashing the air from his lungs, pinning him to the rock without a hope of movement. Dimly, through the rushing in his head, he heard the roar of the death far above. His awareness began to ebb. Max tried to concentrate. Surely there was still some way out. But all his mind would focus on was the mess he had left up above. The process of recorporation had gone about as badly as it possibly could. Instead of having all the death's personality elements instantiate in concert together, the component of wrath and rage has seized control, with all the power of a death at its disposal. There was no intelligence there now, and the only consciousness was the desire to destroy. Such cases were occasionally mentioned in the texts. The frozen dunes covering a hundred square miles on the southern hemisphere continent of Zinartica, where a city-state had once stood, were supposedly the result of one of them. The situation was bad. It was very, very bad. They were dealing with a mad god, and the man upstairs on the firing line was Shah. Shah raised his arms. This was exactly the kind of mess he tried to keep himself out of. It would cost him. There was no doubt about that. The only question was how much. Again the curse, Shah thought, that damnable curse. But there was no help for it. That was Max down there. The chains holding him to the wall had come apart, but the manacles were still on his wrists. Shah bent secondaries from the wild energy sheeting out of the temple, established a forcing function with a muttered sentence in a small sweep of his fingers, added the modifier for iron. Field lines formed over him in the air, intensified as they swung past his shoulders, glowing blue-green, and funneled like water through a ruptured dam into the manacles. His skin underneath the manacles stung, and then, with a soft tentative cracking, the metal dropped past freezing into the supercooled, split and fell past him to the pavement, sizzling in the night air. It had taken an extra second he could ill afford, but hopefully it would be worth it. Shaw knew it would be easier to just get the cuffs off than to contain the feedback from the iron interacting with his aura. The temple in front of him was engulfed in flame, and the street was full with a rabble of faltering guardsmen and men wearing purple pretzels. The arsonist who had been brought in with Shaw sprawled on the ground nearby, hands still manacled behind his back. Through the gaping hole in the wall and past the sheet of fire, Shaw saw a churning mass of hovering flame, now sporting eyes and a ragged mouth and dark reaching talons. Either Askaniale's true form has been unleashed, thought Shaw, or something very powerful doesn't like him. The patterns of the things are boiled as well with flames of the mind, blistering images rolling in insane torrents, snatches of personality jumbled with memory and intellect, all tangled together in a searing flood which meant the thing might react on an instinctual level. Shah stretched out, carefully shaping the motion of his hand. The aura was rotating madly in the flames, not as any kind of neatly woven matrix, but with arching loops and whirls and trailers that shot out to the sides and dangled free in the air, torn dead-end straws from a busted basket. Shah selected a bristle patch of trailers, nudged them around toward the main mass, felt for their common frequency. With a complex pass of his other hand, a cigar-shaped cloud of matrix symbols pulsing and rippling in a complex compound beat sprang up around the trailer patch. The cloud and the trailers began to resonate against each other. Coils of dizzy flames spun out from the oscillating surface. Shah gritted his teeth and pushed, and the trailers in the attached cloud jammed to the main mass of the aura of the thing. The recoil threw him clear across the street into the wall in front of the opposite house. 
Even without direct contact, he felt the irritant grow, felt the presence notice it and try to swat it away, and felt a titanic roar as the now fully resonating field expanded out into the rest of the aura. Shah pushed himself into the ground at the base of the wall. He felt a blast of heat. The leaves of the tree over his head flared and burned, and the remains of Askenyale's temple house exploded, sending chunks of flaming wreckage out across the city. He felt a dark, roiling shape burst upward, writhing in upon itself, and head for the river. He'd been lucky. The principle of economy of force had worked. If the presence, certainly a god gone mad, had been operating on anything higher than a basal level, the maneuver would never have worked. Creatures with their intelligence intact were usually able to ignore a hot foot. If that side of his luck held, the thing wouldn't remember who Shah was when it calmed down. On the other hand, his breathing was labored, much too labored, and the pain in his chest had the force of the weight of an elephant behind it. He coughed and noted a fine spray of pink froth. A hand helped him to his feet. Wow, man, that was really something, said the man who burned down buildings with a note of professional respect. Shah shook off the hand and took a staggering step toward the temple. The heat singed him even across the street. The sound of the fire matched the roaring in Shah's own head. I have a friend down there, he said. The surface of the rubble heaved in the flames and settled further. Hey, man, I'm an expert, said the arsonist. Listen to me. There ain't nobody in there no more. This is something I know. You don't know my friend, Shah said. He tried to raise his arm, got his hand to the level of his chin. The arm was much heavier than it should be, and the crushing pain in his chest had moved up to include the shoulder. A fire retardant feel. That's what I need first, he thought. He tried the first step, the equation for a fire relevancy matrix. The breath froze in his chest. He fell backward into the grip of the arsonist. You don't look so hot, the man said. All white and gooey. Let me down, Shaw said. It was worse than he had thought. It had gone beyond congestive heart failure this time. His use of magic tied by his curse not only into his general metabolism, but directly into the cardiovascular system, was giving him a full-fledged heart attack. It looked like I'd really, finally blown it. I yanked off the ring, and with a shock like knives driving straight through my skin, the thing seemed to weld itself to my fingertips. The sword monarch had my right hand, and now the ring had my left, and a magical firefight like I'd never seen was breaking out directly in front of my nose. I couldn't follow it. Things happened that quickly. Lights exploded, winds blew back and forth. The black aura got up off Yaskinyali like its own living creature, fighting its way through the strange blue cages that dropped around it. And then the blue cage was after me, too, flowing over my hand, holding the ring. Hello, Gash, I thought. Are you there? I didn't get an answer, and the sword didn't want to help either. It was too busy gorging itself on Yale. But then the blue cage closed on my wrist with an electric shock down to my bones, stopped by itself, and suddenly fell apart. The man who'd startled me into thinking he was Gash fell back, rallied himself, and launched another attack. I didn't take it personally. In fact, I was glad for the attention. In the few seconds that had passed, I'd realized a couple of important things. The black aura had been locked to the ring until I'd let it out, and it was going to cause everybody a lot of trouble unless somebody got it back in. Wherever he popped up from, that's what this other guy was trying to do. Probably he even knew what was going on. Hopefully I'd survive to talk to him about it. 
since I had a feeling the aura in the ring was going after me first. I was trying to fight back myself, but the ring was ignoring me. The sword was ignoring me. Gash had gone to hide under a rock someplace. Indeed, the only thing that seemed to be noticing me at all was the black aura, which was throwing itself straight through the ring toward my face. Forces tried to tear my fingers loose from the bone. That was when the world turned white, a giant blast whammed into me. The ring ripped loose from my hand, leaving pieces of my fingers still attached, and I was tumbled backward down the stairs, trailing a column of acrid white vapor from the front of my body. I hit the banister and spun in the air. Something caught me square across my upper back, something surprisingly soft and yielding, and all of a sudden I was sprawled upside down with my feet waving over my head, tangled in the ripped fabric of one of Oscan Yale's overstuffed armchairs. Monach made a cartwheel across my vision, clanged against the stone flue of the fireplace, and dropped somewhere behind my head. I struggled to my feet, having to fall on the floor first to manage it. Helices and flaming balls and the sharp flashes of released energies were still rolling down through the top of the staircase. I was aware of the blood flowing down my left hand and the fiery mass of bruises along my front, but I wasn't going to let a little pain stop me now. The man fighting upstairs was my big hope for getting loose from Gishana Tantra. If I was going to get him to do that, though, the thing he had to do first was deal with the aura I'd set loose from the ring. I grabbed at the sword monarch with my right hand. The sword was more sluggish than usual. It tried to do its turning-my-arm-inside-out number, but its heart wasn't in it. All it really wanted to do now was lay around and digest. Shut up and cooperate, I scrowled at it and I was just starting toward the stairs when the wall into the temple on that side of the ceiling fell in. I dove to the floor and covered my head as the rest of the ceiling burst into flame from above. It occurred to me, irrelevantly under the circumstances, that the din of destruction was very faint in my ears. I wondered if one of the close blasts had blown up my eardrums. A rain of debris was falling into the temple. In the middle of it I spotted the magician from the room upstairs now on the temple floor, in the process of cutting down a group of soldiers with a sword. Again I got my feet under me, favoring my hand and body, and lurched across the heaving floor toward the temple. I took two steps, a third, and then the sword abruptly leapt out to the side and jerked me toward the circular staircase. What are you... But as I started to yank Monarch back, my eyes ran along the line of the pointing blade and fell on the thing's smoldering head at the bottom of the steps, trailing a dying funnel of green magic. It was the ring. The floor under my feet was pitching madly, and whole sections were ripping free and disappearing to somewhere below. Okay, I said to Monarch, there's the ring. What am I supposed to do with it? It suddenly occurred to me that if the ring didn't actually come into contact with my flesh, I probably wouldn't set it off. One of the armchairs had slid across the floor into reach, and was caught up against a dangling beam torn loose from the ceiling. I gingerly grabbed a torn piece of satin fabric with my left hand, gritting my teeth at the raw scraping on my torn fingers, parted the remaining threads, left the widening chasm, and landed at the base of the stairs, dropped the cloth over the ring, held my breath, and picked the satin-wrapped ring back up. The ring was warm and mobile in the cloth, but showed no inclination to attack. I tied a quick rough knot and eased the bundle into my pocket, then turned back to the temple. In the brief moment it had taken me to snatch up the ring, Almost the entire temple floor and large sections of the walls had disappeared, and the fractures in the floor had spread almost to my feet. The magician in the temple was gone, and the guards he had been fighting, and what seemed like half the remaining structure of the temple, 
was cascading after them into the basement. A swooping ball of flame dominated the airspace, leaving fire behind it in the air and on the walls, and dancing along all the remaining wood I could see. Peals of harsh roaring thunder were echoing through the rush of the flames. In the smoke and heat, it was getting difficult to breathe, but every obvious exit was blocked by fire. Every possible exit except one. The basement space I could see through the holes in the floor was still dark. It looked like the fire hadn't started to really burst downward yet. I hooked my arm around a protruding bearing beam, now stripped clear of its four panels, and swung myself down. Light from the fires trickled through, and I had some glow from the sword monarch as well, certainly enough to move with. I clambered onto a long, canted section of boards that had fallen and landed intact, still together in their original assembly, and scurried ahead. A good person height separated my head from the level of the temple floor, but I bent low, trying to balance the need to hurry to escape incineration against the requirement of evading the notice of the flame thing. The stone floor of the basement had fractured where I could see pieces of it beneath the rubble. The bramble of beams approaching on my left had come alight with spreading fires, so I steered right, dropping further to the floor and easing myself under a groaning heap of wall listing over on the other side. My next footstep landed on an apparently solid piece of stone floor, my weight shifted, and the stone gave way. I slid after it, fell free through my own height, and landed up to my hips in a channel of moving water. Another giant wail exploded from above. I looked up, and was just in time to see the flame creature burst upward through the roof and arch away into the sky. Over me, on all sides, was a solid curtain of fire. It was well and truly time to get the hell out, and the sewer I'd fallen into was the best route I'd spotted so far. I hadn't seen a sign of the magician who'd confronted Yale, but he had to be down here somewhere, too. Hopefully he was not only down here, but still alive as well. Right ahead of me, sticking out of the water, was a large mound of wreckage with small tufts of fire at its top. I moved toward it. Next is Chapter 18, Repercussions.